How much are you worth as an artist? How much is your art worth? What can we learn from the careers of Pablo Picasso and Jack King Kirby? What can we learn from AI and people going on strike? Valuing ourselves as artists is a major challenge. We have to navigate how large corporations value our contributions, what our expectations should be working for large companies, and what society places as value on artistic careers. I've worked in a variety of creative endeavors, and in this episode, my goal is to try and unpack this concept as much as possible and try and find out what we are worth as artists. This will both be a philosophical discussion, trying to really get to the root of what it means to be an artist working today, as well as some very practical advice to how to manage your career and how a lot of these business structures that cause a lot of friction for us as artists working today function. And again, how you can navigate and best make your way in the world. Welcome to the Visual Scholar Podcast. My name is Tim McBurney. I've been a professional working artist for over 20 years. And on this show, we're all about demystifying the worlds of art, creativity, and productivity so that you can get better faster and enjoy your artistic journey. If we're talking about money and art, I guess it's important to discuss what an artist is or what definition I am meaning when I use the word artist. In this case, I'm thinking of an artist as someone who is creating something. They are using a medium, a craft to create a message, some way to communicate with, in most cases, other people. Artists can often say things that are hard to actually say with normal words. We can sense the zeitgeist. We can uncover truth within society, within the world. And often these truths and these ideas exist between language. They almost transcend language. And I think in many ways, if you think about music as an example of an art, not something specifically that I would deal with because I'm a visual artist, but music is something that changes the world. And we look up to musicians and we idolize musicians and they have a lot of control and power over us. And it's often because we can sense a lot of things through music and it transcends language and many types of thought that can get in the way of just experiencing feelings and things that very important to the human experience. Likewise, if you hear a story, you might watch a movie. That story has layers and levels to it. It's seeing one thing at this level and it's seeing another thing at another level. The resonance between these creates added meaning that is just not possible through pure explanation. If you likewise think about the value that a story can provide to viewers, you can have two people that might be very close, might be very intimate. As you watch the same movie, you read the same story, you can actually learn a lot about each other and have conversations that might not be possible without that story. The way that we all view these stories is different and our understanding of our shared reality is heightened by 
sort of looking at movies or stories and then thinking about how your friend views it, how your partner views it. And the way that you both see and understand this story actually can, I think, give you a lot of insight into how you're different and what you think. And there are many situations like this where I really think that the art is very important. And this is what I'm meaning by an artist. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone who is presenting work in a gallery. I think we're really just talking about an individual, someone with vision um, who may be marshalling a larger force, but either way, someone with an idea who is going to communicate that idea through a medium. And that I think it is important to kind of state that that medium and that communication is going to be something that rises above normal language, that creates something that is of true value that could not be created or experienced any other way. Probably what I'm not talking about is any conversations about art versus craft. I really view a lot of this discussion to be very similar to, you know, what's going through someone's head and the nonsense they spout after they've gone to philosophy or art theory 101. I think these are really low level ideas and the differentiation between art and craft is something that speaks more to marketing more to narratives that are created by, you know, artists who are quite good at creating narratives. I think that if you look at modern art and Duchamp and the toilet bowl, all of these things that are often, you know, held in high regard, I think it speaks much more to the ingenuity and the marketing ability and the propagandistic ability of those artists to make people think that those things were important. Now, is that art? Sure, that's fine, right? But we're not really delving too much into that conversation. Again, I think it is important to understand that art is created through craft, whatever craft that is. It may be through paint on a canvas. It may be through propaganda. Either way, you need to be quite good at that in order to sell your idea. Another fundamental thing here that I think needs to be said is that often these artistic ideas come from within artists just tend to have these feelings and this desire to communicate these feelings through a medium. And I think defining it that way is also useful. That is kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about an artist is someone who has that idea innately and that it is not necessarily part of any larger structure, but they do have a desire to tell that story, to uncover that truth um, and to tell it to other people. When it comes to valuing an artistic endeavor or the artistic endeavor. I think this can be a massive challenge for us as artists. I think it is really difficult to value our own work. We're often very close to it. We're not really good at telling whether it's good or not because we were part of creating it. And as I often talk about on this show, the way that we perceive the work and the way that other people perceive it is going to be different. The way that we perceive it based on how we wanted it to be versus how it is really can affect our view of whether it's good or not. And I think that often blinds us to the appreciation and the value it might have to other people, let's say. Fundamentally, us valuing it and figuring out, look, am I any good? Is this good? Does anyone care about this? Is quite challenging on the primary fundamental level. There are also a lot of narratives that you might run into as an artist about how art as a career is not very valued. It's not a good option to choose. There's the starving artist narrative that often gets bandied about. 
And despite people seeing a lot of these, you know, clear evidence of artists being very important to them, all of the movies, all of the stories, all of the video games being created by people with a lot of vision and hundreds and thousands of other people with, you know, these little sort of mini visions for how all the different elements and aspects of that larger work should go together. It's not just one person's vision, it's an entire cacophony of different artists, you know, banding together to create these things, despite the clear evidence that that exists and that without it, people's lives would be a little bit more shallow to say the least. People still do seem to say that on a fundamental level, art is not that valuable. Artists are a dime a dozen. This is kind of easy and, you know, it's not really worth much money. It's not a good career choice. And for sure, I think it's easy also to look around and see many artists who are jaded about the experience of being an artist and trying to get your work valued, trying to make your way in this world. It's easy to see artists who aren't making any money and often not just that, but that there's not necessarily this solid connection between good art and that good art being rewarded with lots of monetary value or otherwise. For me, I would often look at, you know, artists that I could see around me and I'd hear stories of the ultimate modern artist, someone like Picasso, right, manifesting this idea of cubism and being valued from an artistic standpoint, from this standpoint of society, right, appreciating him moving things forward into this, again, nether realm of cubism and relativism and that this was modernity. And obviously, my understanding at least is that Picasso was quite wealthy. He, you know, made a good lot in life out of doing all of these things. And yet his drawing was kind of squiggly and it didn't represent what I would at least appreciate as a good level of craft. And I would see someone like Jack King Kirby, the creator of half the Marvel Universe that inspires the Marvel Cinematic Universe and has gone on to make companies and corporations and other people billions and billions of dollars to make them very wealthy. He also, to my understanding, was not necessarily poor when he died, but was very jaded by the experience. He classically said that comics will break your heart, speaking to someone who was, you know, potentially going to go into fine art or comics. There is this idea that a lot of these career paths are not necessarily all they're cracked up to be. And I think you can see that with someone like Jack Kirby. He's someone who created so much, so much valuable intellectual property that was very valuable for the companies that he worked for. And again, he didn't really see the fruits of that labor. In fact, personally for me, a lot of this just didn't make sense. I saw a lot of commercial illustrators, people who were in many ways making a good career out of their art. They had good jobs and they were regularly creating art, but they weren't really attached to it in the way that an artist is. And they sounded very jaded when I talked to them. There was a lot of complaining, a lot of saying that they would just love to do their personal work, which I would interpret as their art someday. And 
that they were very much, you know, captured by this corporate machine. They weren't happy. They were just kind of stuck, right? Again, stuck like a cog in a machine. And I didn't want any part of that. It seemed completely miserable. And so for the most part, initially, personally, I shunned this idea of commercial art and working for the man. As a response to this, I went off to seek my fortune as a comic book creator, as an auteur, someone who had control of their work and legal and moral ownership of it. I sought out a job or a place within the French comic book industry, an industry that is very much you know, appreciated for its appreciation of art and artists. And a lot of the contracts and the legal situation there was very much in favor of artists' rights. I got to own a portion of all of the books that I created and I fundamentally owned them at the bottom line. That's kind of what happened. And I got to retain my moral right to be identified as the author of this work, something that not all artists that we look up to share. And while I would say all of that lived up to its reputation, I think that was all true, and I think it probably still is true. Nevertheless, it didn't necessarily work out for me, as I don't think it necessarily works out for a lot of people on a monetary level. And I think there's a lot of good business reasons for that that we'll get into later in this particular episode. But again, at some point, I kind of just had to admit that I really didn't understand what was going wrong here. I didn't understand the truth of the situation. And a lot of the things and the actions that I was taking in my career to try and avoid a particular thing, head towards another thing. Again, there was a fog upon me and I really didn't understand what was going on. One of the major enemies that I think got me early on was this narrative. Now, I speak about the idea of narrative and a lot of artists being very good at controlling the narrative. I think a lot of modern art speaks, as I said, much more to someone's skill at propaganda and marketing than it does to artistic skill or craft. And again, that's sort of part of the whole game, part of making a product and selling it to people. But in a similar way, I think the idea of narrative and the stories that get told often by artists and by people and things that are repeated, these ideas, these memes that get into the public consciousness about art and its value. A lot of these things, I think, were ideas that I was very much falling prey to. I think there's a lot of mythology around being an auteur, around being an artist's artist and, you know, creating your own thing. There's something to be said for that for sure. And I think there's a lot of paths to success there. But I feel like, you know, taking a vow of the starving artist is a narrative that, again, you know, has a lot of mystique to it, but can also be very miserable, not that much fun. Um, and again, can make a lot of people very, very unhappy in the long run. Even if we look at some of these larger stories, again, we often have a whole bunch of very complicated ideas being boiled down to very simple ideas. Even the idea of a large corporation is a little bit misleading. Corporations and companies are just made up of people. They have certain incentives, and I think that's where the real rub comes. But Again, it's all just people and everyone's trying to, you know, make their way in the world and do the best they can and work with the incentives they have. 
there's not necessarily a big evil corporation, although I think a lot of the structures end up that way. And not every corporation is just looking out for the bottom line. There's a lot of companies that are just made up of people and they're just trying to create things. And the only way you can do that is to work for hire. So again, I feel like it's complicated here, but the real thing that I needed to do and that I think is important to do is to try and just break down the fundamentals of how these things work. Obviously, artists do change the world. People do value art. Intellectual property is incredibly valuable. It's the primary thing that a lot of these big companies end up owning. It's the thing that makes them valuable themselves. It really helped me to try and break a lot of this down into its most fundamental business sense. And again, if you're aware of a lot of these concepts, this might not be new, but I think for a lot of artists, this is because we come at this from the artist's perspective and it is the artist's perspective that we view everything through this little prism of understanding. And again, I feel like that's how a lot of the you know narratives are built, you know, who's good, who's bad, these large corporations are evil, these ones are not. These structures are very relative is I guess what I'm saying. And if we look at the simple mechanism, I think it's a little bit easier to step back and understand what's actually going on. So if we go back to that frame, the artist's art is valuable. The things we create are valuable in some way. It's hard to tell how much they're valuable though. And I think that's where this idea is a little bit relative. The thing that sells is a product and without a product, it's very hard to figure out how much something has value in the marketplace. And that's kind of how the money is made. As artists, we're part of creating a product, of creating a work, but it is the way the product is you know, productized and sold into the market where most of the money is made. The marketing, in fact, is where most of the money is made. If you can't sell a product, if you can't find quote unquote product market fit, then there's no money there. It really doesn't matter how good the product is. And there's lots of good examples of this, of great films that were marketed poorly. Not necessarily that the marketing wasn't good, but even just that the film wasn't the film that people thought they were going to see. Someone thought, hey, that's not going to sell, so let's try and make it feel as if it's a different type of movie, and everyone goes to it, and they're unhappy, right? Because again, expectation, what you're sold, the idea behind it, that whole process is very important. So you need all of these things to work together. But fundamentally, it's important to understand that as an artist, the thing you're making, either you may be a Picasso and the product you're creating is kind of just a canvas. It is a sketch, a lithographic print. What it is, is a physical product. The way that it's marketed is a very large part of the product and the way that value is attributed to it. And I think that's where often with uh, capital A art, and gallery work that the real magic happens. It's the marketing and the process behind selling those canvases that defines their value in the marketplace. It's very much a matter of convincing people that this has value and that it's going to increase in value. If you look at someone like Jack Kirby as another example, and we can follow this forward, Jack Kirby is creating the actual comic book pages and they are going to create a comic book. This is the product that gets sold into the marketplace. A big part of the marketing is done by the 
quote unquote writer, the Stan Lees of the world, the people who hype it up and make people feel good about being part of this new Marvel universe. So again, it's important to separate these things out and understand that the art has value the marketing has value and the product is really the important thing that we're all working towards. The product is the thing that makes money. Most of the friction, I think, for us as artists comes from the arbitrage where these large corporations or people, individuals, get in the middle of us and the market. And they often define what the product is or they kind of just arbitrage the ownership of that product. And this is something you can see all around you. It's just important to wake up and understand what is happening. You can be an artist. I could, you know, potentially sell my art to be printed on a mouse mat or some kind of print on the wall. But the question is, again, who is controlling the marketing for that? Often when we get these emails, someone asking us to, you know, join our art and our sort of personal brand to, you know, a store they have where they're making, you know, widgets that need art on them. The question is, again, you know, that's an arbitrage of us and the market. Now, again, there's very legitimate cases where that is completely viable. Um, but yeah, just understand that's what's happening. Whenever you see these deals, understanding that someone is trying to arbitrage your particular art and creative effort. And the question is, how much of the pie are they getting? How much of the pie are you getting? Is that fair? Is that worth it? There are many of these structures that do support artists quite well and end up, you know, serving everyone well. Everyone kind of tends to be happy. That's ideally what you want. You want as an artist for someone else to really think about how they could use your art, find a market for it, develop that market, and then you just kind of sell them the intellectual property for your images and your brand. And they're doing a lot of heavy lifting and you're doing a lot of heavy lifting and it comes together and it's a magical scene energy, right? Where you do very little work besides just having created your art and they do a lot of their work and everyone benefits essentially. Everyone's happily. That's kind of the ideal situation in this capitalistic marketplace is everyone gets a pretty good deal. Everyone gets a good cut of that pie and life moves on. And again, hopefully more better opportunities arise down the line. It's also the case though, that people are fed hopes and dreams as young artists and they're sold into indentured slavery almost as part of large corporations. And they're worked to the bone, having to work day and night, seven days a week for very little pay. And they're just fed scraps. This often happens in the video gaming industry, the VFX industry. A lot of these places really do burn out artists and they're just used as cogs in a machine. They're fed very little of the final product. And again, the experience for the artist there is very, very negative in terms of how much of the pie they actually get, how much they have to work, how much sweat equity they have to put in. And again, the creative involvement they get, the artistic um, you know, benefit and satisfaction they get from creating that work is very little. Some of these deals are good. Some of them are bad when you let someone get in the middle of you and the market. I think it should come as no surprise that when these corporations get very large, they do take on the attributes of, you know, a corporation that is kind of not necessarily aligned with a lot of artists' needs and desires. 
And I think we should have no expectation of these large corporations serving as well as artists. If you look at the history, again, of someone like Jack Kirby and his creations, where fundamentally he created, as far as I'm concerned, you know, a large portion of the Marvel Universe. He came up with a lot of the ideas that are directly, you know, seen within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And this is where these ideas persisted, not necessarily owned by Jack Kirby, owned instead by a corporation and then built into these later structures, worked upon by hundreds of other artists who, again, didn't own those works or those characters for the most part. And then that entire collection of intellectual property gets sold to a company like Disney. Now, again, what is everyone's incentives here? It's not necessarily to employ artists or to serve anyone is to create products based on that intellectual property because the intellectual property in the corporation has become larger than any one artist, larger than any one artistic vision. Money and art are different. They're separate. I think this is really important to understand and this has helped me the most. The money is made when you have a good product market fit. This is where a product is good and the market wants it. We are valuable insofar as we can help to make that product good. A hundred years or more ago, if you were creating a magazine or a newspaper, a printed product to sell to people, this was new technology. This was hot stuff. This was how you were creating, you know, completely new boundaries of entertainment and news. You needed illustrators to help sell and make this product better. Otherwise, it was just words. You needed illustrations for as many pages as you could in order to sell products within that newspaper. You needed illustrators and artists to create advertisements. If you needed to sell the entire thing on the newsstand, you needed an amazing cover. And this is where you have your Norman Rockwells, your J.C. Landeckers that were paid handsomely to create these amazing covers for places like the Saturday Evening Post. And I'm sure there were hundreds and hundreds of other magazines, hundreds and hundreds of other artists that were all compensated well because the corporation and the product needed this to be successful in the marketplace. Likewise, commercial photography gets superseded by stock photography and a lot of commercial illustration became supplanted by clip art, by stock illustration. This was the paradigm that affected people again 30, 40 years ago. This was a major factor and a lot of these are now being supplanted by the idea of artificial intelligence being able to create these things without using stock photography. There's always a way that the products that we're creating and the companies that are going to find the product market fit, if we don't take control of that ourselves as artists, are just going to probably find a way to do that in the cheapest way possible. That's what they've been doing since the beginning, and there's no reason to believe they're going to stop at any one arbitrary point. Mediums themselves rise and fall in their relevance to the general marketplace and the ability to find product market fit for products. 
like comic books. Back in the day, you had amazing artists. You had Hal Foster. You had all of these comics like Prince Valiant, Flash Gordon. And the artists that created these things were rock stars. They were the absolute cream of the crop of aspiration for people to get a Sunday strip in the paper. This was like making it big. This was huge. And now again, you know, that medium has for the most part been superseded by film and television and streaming services that provide entertainment in a way that the market seems to like more. It doesn't mean that there's no product market fit, but again, the size of that market has shrunk. In a similar way, if you liked low poly modeling, you were all the rage back in the day, back in PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2 low poly modeling was all it now there's not as much need for that but again none of these things you notice means that the artistic form fades from existence there are still many games that do really well with a low poly modeling look people still create amazing things with comics the key is the corporations and the products that are being built and the value that is captured there and the degree to which they are going to hire a whole bunch of artists to work on it. It's worth noting that obviously a lot of the value that we're going to receive from being an artist is not necessarily going to be monetary. And I think that's something that easily gets lost when we let other people write the narrative and the story for what success as an artist means. Now, this is not to fall into the starving artist trap and say, hey, look, you know, you, you can just be poor and, you know, the, the money doesn't matter. Again, I think all of these things are immensely complicated. Again, I'm just trying to understand it partly for myself as well. Talking through these things, I think, is useful. But obviously, just creating your art and having other people experience it and, and seeing what they think. Again, there's this idea I went, I spoke about in the beginning about two people viewing a single piece of art. The way that you both see it is valuable, right? Because you can have a conversation. What did this mean to you? What did this mean to you? And then they're like, oh, you thought this? Well, that's interesting because I thought this. Again, there's a conversation that you couldn't have without that piece of art. In a similar way, I think that's something that we get to experience as artists with everything we make and with every interaction we have with people. Did you like this? Do you think this was interesting? What do you feel about this? Just that experience of creating something or having an idea, manifesting it from nothing, putting it out into the world and then seeing what people think is kind of addictive. It's kind of the magic of the whole thing for me anyway. And I think it's important to understand that you kind of can't put a price on that, right? I, I don't know how to make that happen any other way. It's a complete mystery. And I think that we don't need a lot of people to be having that experience for us to find value out of it. You know, essentially just one person looking at it and, and having an opinion or having a thought being able to have a conversation about our internal dialogue and you know what we were thinking about as we as we created it is valuable. So part of the reason again I like this topic and again I want to sort of bring it to you is that I see a lot of dialogue around these concepts when it comes to the AI debates and writer strikes and people really trying to come to grips with this. And the way that I viewed this for a long time is just that if you kind of want these systems of exploitation to change, then you need to do something about it when things are going right. Uh, it's very sort of disappointing to me that a lot of you know people are kind of very worried about 
you know, their jobs when they get attacked by, you know, burgeoning, um, you know, optimization and automation, right? It's always the fact that, you know, when our job is challenged that we get upset about it and it feels really real. But, you know, when we're reaping the benefits from, you know, 100,000 other people's jobs being completely annihilated by automation that we benefit from where we can buy phones and technology that, you know, is completely wiped out, um, industries and people's livelihoods, it's important to really understand how this stuff works and understand the narrative at play. If we always view it as our job being under attack and that, yes, this large corporation that previously seemed to really like us and value us now no longer values us at all, um, when we can see as fact, as evidence of their action, not what they say, but what they have done to many, many artists before us is that they exploit and don't appreciate that art, that they will rip off people when they can and they will take advantage of artists and treat them very, very poorly if they can get away with it. And of course, they say that, you know, everything's great. But that's their narrative. That's not necessarily evidenced by the action or the history that we can clearly see. And I think constructing, again, our own narrative around what this is and what you should expect by interacting with these large corporations where your boundaries should be defined, I think is really important. And I think that's really the discussion that should be happening. And it's much better to have these discussions when everything's going well than to wait for it to, you know, the boat to have kind of sailed here because you just don't have any bargaining power at that point. So again, I don't have a lot of involvement with any of that really. I'm not part of any union. I don't have a lot of involvement with any of that stuff. But again, I've found a lot of peace looking at and appreciating the way that all these companies and markets and actors and employers and artists interact with each other and just trying to see what is actually happening. Again, personally, I would have no expectation of being treated well by any of those companies because history tells me they don't value artists and they never have. And again, it's insanity to imagine that they are going to magically do so in the future. All right. So hopefully that doesn't sound too dystopian and, and miserable because that's not really my intention. But I do think that there are problems here as an artist and being valued by society and that in order to fix the problem, you need to identify it. You do need to understand where the traps are. So I'm not saying any of this to be like, oh, doom and gloom, woe is me, um, you know, woe betide the artistic industry. I think that you just need to understand the mechanisms at play. These large corporations, what their incentives are. Often these systems of exploitation, whether they are, you know, manifest specifically by people or they just sort of are emergent behaviors, you know, they are often putting up these uh, little kind of things that we want. You know, hey, become this famous director, famous concept artist, famous writer famous VFX person. And, you know, the experience that people have is that, you know, often they don't get there, right? There's for every amazing, you know, concept artist who gets designed this really cool thing, you know, there's a whole bunch of people designing a whole bunch of boring stuff, right? That's not that interesting. And, you know, sometimes they never get to the top, right? We're often dangled these, again, sort of idealized um, sort of end goals when it comes to those larger careers. And obviously not everyone can get to the top of that, and there are hundreds of VFX workers who, you know, get sort of, you know, burnt out, worked to the bone, um, not really paid. And they're kind of promised like, oh, maybe if you just keep doing this, you know, 
you'll get to the next level. But, you know, there really isn't a next level in a lot of these things. There are a lot of these businesses and industries that work by exploiting the desire for artists to work hard and their desire to just kind of, you know, work as artists. And it's just important to understand that if you don't see that happening, then it's very easy to get burnt. But again, as I said, that's part of identifying the problem, not necessarily the solution. And in order to, you know, have a happy career, um, to, you know, understand, you know, where the value is going to be created and how you can sort of thrive in any of these situations, you need to understand where not to go, right? It's often a matter of just understanding, hey, you know, don't go here, don't go here. And then, you know, the rest is probably going to be, look, it's somewhere in the middle. Again, my goal is not to be uh, doom and gloom. The ideas that artists create for society through these large corporations, the intellectual property that is manifested is very valuable. These things get stale. They get old really quickly. If you don't have people with energy and new ideas to push them forward, you can see that at play today. Many of these large properties that we really like, again, have stagnated to a certain degree. It's hard to make good stuff. You can't formulize it and, you know, magically just keep churning it out. doesn't matter how much money is involved. You need people with artistic integrity, with direction, with an idea, with something to say that people care about. Otherwise, there is no product market fit for these things. So our role here is important. It's really just a matter of understanding what path you want to take. And I think it's really important to separate the way you value your art from the way that is valued from these monetary structures and not let society confuse those things. Because I think that's often what's happening is we're fed a narrative that says our art is valuable in the marketplace and therefore it has valuable. And, you know, this art is worth less and this art is worth more because someone is paying us in the marketplace more or less for this. Really important to separate those out and also come to peace and come to terms with the different options that we might have. The first option I think we typically have is to work in a production line. This is where we're literally creating a product. You are in a production chain. You're one little cog in a larger machine. And this is what most art jobs are. Now, I think this is a perfectly fine thing to do, but again, you have to really pay attention to how that chain is working, how that machine functions, where the value is being created, and you have to consciously work towards the roles that are going to get you more money or be more valuable if that's what you want to do. And you also have to understand that that train might stop really quickly because again, it's not designed for you to have a job, it's designed to create a product. And if you don't consciously update your skills and figure out where you fit in that giant machine um, and stay current with it and optimize your abilities, you know, so you can help that production chain the most, then again, you know, you're going to run into trouble. So that's always the goal is just to understand the positives and the negatives there. You can have a huge amount of fun working in these production chains surrounded by other people who are really passionate. And if you get on good teams and good products, this can be an immensely positive experience. You're literally surrounded by a huge number of other talented artists that you can learn from constantly and you all raise each other and you create products and things that just wouldn't be possible for a single person to create. And there's something magical about that, right? You're part of something bigger than yourself. And again, you know, there's nothing that can be, you know, said 
poorly about that experience. Again, I've had great fun doing that, but it is what it is. And sometimes that train stops real quick. The second thing you can do as an option is to own the entire chain of the business, right? Understand the idea, the marketing, creating the product, and you are either a major contributor, a major owner of that. Again, I think people have often viewed this as, you know, starting a, a large company or, you know, that there's a lot of baggage here. It really just means that you're taking responsibility for that entire thing. And I think often, you know, just people selling their art as prints online are, are kind of doing this, people making video games with one person, two person, you know, maybe a few people are, are very much doing this, right? You, you really sort of own the business, you own the product and, you know, maybe you hire a few people, but everyone is very much, you know, creatively involved and has creative ownership of the product. I think that's the second obvious thing you can do with your art is to really go a little bit smaller. You're not going to have the same opportunity to create these really, really large products. But again, I think this is often a really, really sensible thing to do because you're not going to be affected by all of that other stuff, right? All of that other machinery, you don't have to worry about that. Even though the scope is much smaller, you can really just focus on how do I make the best product? And I think there's something very satisfying from an artistic standpoint about that. Lastly, I think you can take the vow of poverty. <laughs> not literally, but I think you can really just optimize for being a capital A artist. And I think there's a lot of people who do this where they find ways to sell their art and, you know, create a market for it. But it is very much secondary to, you know, them being artists and really identifying as being a solo person who creates things. And I think when you do this, you have to understand that, Again, it is very challenging to find product market fit when you can't just drastically change the product because it's your artistic expression. And again, that's just not what you're going to do. So it's very much a matter of scraping together and really figuring out how to find you know, a small but valuable number of people who are going to be your market and who really like what you are creating. And I think that as well is something that you know, used to be something where people did in galleries and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I think it's actually a lot more possible now with, you know, the modern sort of internet and, and marketing opportunities you have to actually make that a really viable career. But again, this is where you still are owning everything, but you're kind of sticking to your artistic guns and you're not going to change what you're making that much. You're not really thinking about a product or, you know, the business side of it. What you're really focusing on is how do I market and find a market that fits what I really love to create. The key to all of this, I really think, is to see the world for how it is as much as possible and to construct your own narratives around how you're going to navigate that. Try not to get swayed by, again, the narratives that are created by society or your parents or other people who don't really understand how these creative markets function, where the value is and how all the stuff that they consume every day is made. Understand for yourself how it's made and how you want to fit in there. And I think that way, again, you can construct your own narrative and really think about how you're owning your place in this particular environment. As I said earlier on, even though it may seem a little bit self-defeating to be a capital A artist, even if you're just, you know, creating little prints of fantasy stuff or whatever it is, again, that's what I think of when I think of doing that. 
there's a lot of benefits to that that, again, are invaluable. You just doing the things that you want and finding other people and connecting with people who like the same things, creating that sort of product, creating that market, trying to sort of figure out how to make these amazing things. There's a huge amount of value that you're going to get to that from that self-expression and also in the long term, building a brand for yourself that will persist over time, building a fan base that will potentially support you for a long time. There's a value there that, again, can't be expressed in pure monetary terms. You're building something that has a huge amount of value to your life and that, again, might actually be able to provide you financially you know, for a long time in the future. All right. So that was, as usual, a fairly amorphous series of thoughts and ideas on money and value and how to make your way in the world as an artist. These are the things that, again, I've thought of and I've sort of noticed over the years that have helped me to try and navigate these same topics. So hopefully that has helped you to understand these things and helped you to really, you know, think about what you might want to do or at least just got you to think about it. What I want to do lastly is, as normal, some takeaways. What can we actually do with this information and what's some really practical advice going forward? Okay, analytical takeaway. How can we view this dispassionately? How can we view this from a 50,000 foot viewpoint, let's say? I think there's two concepts here that I think are really worthwhile exploring. One is just that typically businesses and companies that we're working with are going to view things from the product market fit backwards. Now, if you think on a linear scale, how us as artists often think things are created. We come up with an intent, we have an idea, and then we're really not even sure what medium or thing we're going to use to create that, what it's going to look like, and we kind of create the product. And then we're often like, oh, now I kind of know what product I've made, then how, how am I going to sell this, what market? I'm, it all just seems too hard because we're kind of starting from an idea. We don't even know what our product is going to be, let alone how to market it, how to make money from it. The, the person who's maybe more on the business side is going to think completely in the opposite direction. If you look at traditional business literature, it's often about finding a hole in the market. You're going to say, okay, there's tons of small cars, there's tons of big cars, but there's no middle cars, right? There's no you know middle cars that are this color. There's no um, you know SUVs, right? SUVs was a giant market saying, we need a small SUV, Um you know, and then everyone's what everyone wants. There's a hole in the market. You create that product, you make money, right? Because for some reason, everyone wants an S. Everyone wants an SUV, um, despite you know it being tiny and small and can't go off road. So it doesn't matter whether it's logical or whether that's needed. There's a hole in the market. You create the product, you get product market fit, and just money starts coming out like crazy. So this is a thing that people are always wanting to happen. Um, from a business standpoint. They're looking for holes in a market. They're trying to exploit it. They're trying to create a product that fits into that jigsaw piece. And if you look at you know an artistic endeavor, like again, maybe sort of Hollywood again, which I love to use as an example, this would be where people are saying, hey, you know, people are just talking about pirates. Everyone's really keen on pirates, but there's no pirates movies. We haven't had a pirates movie since Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, so what do we do? Do we make make another Pirates of the Caribbean 7 or 8 or whatever it is? I have no idea how many we're up to right now. Or do we make a completely new property? Um, but this is where they think. They think about like what is the zeitgeist? What is you know popular right now? How do we make a movie that is sort of going to fit that particular market? And they work backwards. 
again, completely opposite to the way that we approach things. And I think finding a good hybrid is worthwhile as an artist. Um, again, if you can, some people can, some people can't. But also understand that this is where a lot of the friction happens is you have people who are trying to create a product and they already know the market they're trying to fit the product into. And that kind of doesn't often gel with us as artists who are trying to come up with like, but what's the point of this? What's the idea? And it's like, this is where often garbage is created, right? Because these things don't really mix that well. And, and making them mix well is part of the magic of, um, you know, making these large projects good, you know, and every good movie series, every good television series, every good game is something where people have managed this complexity really well. And they figured out how to find a market, um, find a hole in that market, create a really good product that has intent, um, that has artistic integrity, all of those things. And again, you know, make that sort of well. So again, that's just important to understand. You're often coming at that from different angles. Now, if we look at that concept of the creation of a product, the way that you typically get value from the creation of that product as an individual or a group of individuals is you, you either want to be at the the sort of early ideation phase where the IP is created, the idea is conceived, there's a lot of value there. And there's also a lot of value when it comes to the marketing or actually figuring out how to sell it. Those are the two things that are really valuable in that process. The thing that's not valuable is what's in the middle, which is the production, the actual creating of the thing. Now, you might be saying, look, that's not fair. Um, but that typically is how this functions. So the people who have the most sort of creative control, who come up with the ideas, are valued a lot. The people who are just in the middle, sort of making things, doing stuff day to day, even though they are the people who literally get it, get it across the line, they are not typically, um, you know, going to receive that much money. Those roles in the middle of production are commoditized. And again, the things that are important are let's come up with an idea for a product that is going to fit a market, right? And being able to market it and make money from it is super important. If you look again at a lot of Hollywood films, the marketing budget is often equal to or a substantial portion of the production budget. So people spend $100 million making a film and $100 million marketing it. If you don't market it well, no money comes out of that product market fit. So just understand this fundamental thing. This is often described visually as a smile curve. So if you think about on the left or the right, um, whatever it is, um, right, you, you kind of have a, a line right at the start of that line. You have, again, I'm sort of flipped on the camera, so I'm trying to do this on the camera, right? Um, at the beginning, you have an idea and a product, and there's typically lots of money is received there. As you get into production, right, the amount of money that's received is sort of less. And again, as you have to sell that product, the amount of money um, goes up, right? And again, this is just one of those fundamental things that is really, really important to understand in the equation. So this often means that a lot of things that don't seem like they're fair happen frequently. I think this is why often VFX industries get really, really grindy. You know, these VFX um, on, on movies are commoditized. Anyone can do it. You can get anyone to make a pirate hat for your pirate film. Uh, no one, no one's really going to care whether it's good or bad. It seems, uh, you know, you can get someone to make a VFX boat for your ship. Um, these things are viewed as being commodified by the people who are, you know, sort of capturing that value. Now, whether or not they are 
whether or not the product is actually improved significantly by having a better pirate hat, better costuming, better artistic integrity, a better story, better actors, better VFX. Um, again, you know, there's often a level to this, which is kind of found out through that marketing, right? But again, just understand that fundamentally, if we are in production on those large corporations, that there's not a lot of creative input, there's not a lot of power, and those are commodified positions, and they're the most sort of um, easily upset. Now, this is also important to understand if you're looking at smaller scale sort of studio work or if you're freelancing that the money is really going to come at the idea phase and at the marketing phase at the end. And most of the jobs that you find freelancing in production, um, like sort of making assets and stuff like that, yes, they're very valuable. Yes, there's often lots of work. But again, those are the first types of jobs to be outsourced. Um, you know, we turned into AI and there's often like a pretty hard cap on the amount of money you can make there. Whereas again, if you come up with a great idea or you know how to market a good idea, then uh, again, there tends to be a lot more money there in general. So again, that's not about it being fair. Just trying to look at it analytically from um, the least sort of passionate place possible. Now, I think it's worthwhile looking at a few of those examples I talked about earlier. If you look at Picasso and Jack Kirby, I think for me, this is how at least I rationalize it. And I understand as well, I don't know any of these people intimately. I haven't read a lot of books on this. I'm just looking at the colloquial stories that are told about Picasso and Jack Kirby. Picasso being, you know, the inventor of cubism, maybe, maybe not. Again, that's often how he's viewed. And Jack Kirby being, again, you know, the guy who created half of the Marvel universe. Now, if you look at Picasso, I think there's a good understanding there that as an artist, he's controlling the production, um, but also the ideation, coming up with the concepts, um, what he's going to make. And he, there was a lot of really serious ideas in the concept of cubism. This is a revolutionary way of viewing the world and made people, you know, really sort of rethink and, you know, have good experiences viewing that. Um, and I think he was also a very good marketer, very good at the propagandistic side of selling himself and the ideas. And I think a lot of these artists who are very successful, you know, Andy Warhols, these people who were able to make, you know, art that had lower craft, let's say into something that was very valuable is they were good at marketing. They were good at selling. And you can see there that having a really high concept idea um, and being good at selling it is what will fundamentally be able to make these people a lot of money. If you contrast that with Jack Kirby, what was Jack Kirby good at? Yes, he was good at the ideation, but what you notice about many of the conflicts that happened with the creation of the Marvel Universe, you had Stan Lee, who was kind of using the Marvel method to write where he'd say, hey, Jack, here's an idea for this. And that's the fundamental initial idea. And yes, Jack Kirby went along and sort of took that and actually made it into something. But it was, again, Stan Lee who was the one who was promoting everything and selling it. And often you have these, uh, you know, arguments about sort of Stan Lee versus Jack Kirby. Stan Lee, you know, wrote and created half of the Marvel, cinema, the Marvel Universe and, you know, went on to be identified as the creator of a lot of those things. A lot of the artists he worked with were very upset because they felt like they did most of it. They did most of the production 
but they didn't get anywhere near the amount of sort of fame and fortune that um, uh, sort of Stanley received for that uh, work. Now, again, there's the, the, the rabbit hole there is <laughs> like very, very deep and, and tangled, and I don't necessarily want to jump in there um, because, again, it could easily be seen that uh, Stanley, you know, wasn't necessarily, a, you know, a billionaire or a millionaire either. But I think that's a good example of how you can see clearly that people who literally created the things that had a massive amount of value, they weren't attached to the initial idea and they also weren't attached to the marketing and the selling of that idea. And therefore, they kind of got shafted out of the majority of the compensation. And a lot of what those comic book artists did was just day in, day out, grinding, um, and if you made comics, you know how much work that is. And these people were prolific. They're spending a huge amount of time at the drawing board creating these things. And this is what, again, initially just didn't make sense to me. How can Picasso do these little scribbles? And how can Jack Kirby create literally half of Marvel comics? And yet he's sort of sad and miserable. And Picasso is, I don't know what Picasso was, but you know, I imagine he seemed like a jolly fellow, right? He seemed like he was enjoying life, let's say. And I think, again, you can really understand this through the smile curve of production and compensation, right? The production just never gets that much compensation. It's the ideas and how to sell it. And again, you can view this very simply. Um, if you knew someone who really was able to sell something like, hey, if you make this art, I'll be able to sell a million copies of it. That would be valuable. You would want to work with that person. Understanding how to get the product market fit and sell it into the market is immensely valuable. That's what makes all the money, as is that initial idea, because it's often the initial idea that will help the product market fit. Either way, none of this is fair, none of this is ethical, none of this is moral, but I think that's the best way I've come to understand how this stuff functions, again, dispassionately. If you want a simple bro version of this, I would say if you are going to work for the man, make sure you get a damn good contract, but probably just don't work for the man. If we look at the really practical, like what can you actually do? Like what as action can you do going forward to really move the needle or improve your career chances, etc.? I think the first thing is just to understand a lot of those fundamental business mechanics and how they all fit together. Firstly, understand that the marketing is often how the money is made. And the more you can understand about marketing, you don't have to become some creepy marketing salesperson. Again, as artists, we don't really like that vibe. But look, the more you can understand about marketing, the better. If you understand that's how the money is actually made, I think it makes the world you know, make a lot more sense. The second thing here, I think, is to really get good and focus on the ideas. So often in the beginning of our artistic career, for me anyway, but maybe for you, I feel like we do have a lot of ideas. We have those key concepts and the ability to say, hey, I'm going to make this whole world. I'm going to make my own story. I'm going to do my own thing. And then again, the problem is that it's often those production level jobs that are the most commodified. Those are the ones that we actually have the best opportunity of getting in the beginning. And we often get shepherded towards them from people giving career advice. Like, hey, you can get a job doing this thing that, you know, again, isn't that creatively fulfilling, but at least it's a job. And so we start to do that and we lose a lot of touch with that artistic instinct to create. 
but I think it's there for a lot of us. So if you're starting out, I would say, don't lose that. Just make your own stuff. I think the more that you can get in touch with being able to just create stuff, come up with ideas, get in really early on the ground floor of projects or concepts is going to allow you to be in a much, much better position and maybe be a much more important cog in that machine, let's say. If you're much later on in your career, again, just remember that you probably had some of these intentions as an artist in the beginning. And the more you can reconnect with this and just understand there's nothing magical about these people who are coming up with, you know, these story ideas or, you know, these sort of major concepts that go into directing, um, you know, how a project goes. You can do that too. It's just a skill. You need to build on it. You need to trust your artistic instinct. You need to develop it. You need to figure out how to make probably your own little projects and just keep that going. But understand, you know, you making your own stuff is not just you kind of scratching a creative itch or, you know, doing this thing that isn't that valuable. It's, it's you figuring out how to do that stuff yourself. And eventually it's not just a little bit valuable. That is a lot valuable. Lastly, I would say, although I have said, and I think it is evident that the craft, the production is not that valuable. I really think you should focus on your craft because I think there is a hurricane of automation coming on us. And what this means, as I've said frequently, is not necessarily that all the artists are going to lose their jobs from these large corporations. Look, that may be the case, but I think what's going to happen is many, many structures that are going to be part of you creating your own business are going to collapse onto themselves and become very, very accessible to the point where it would be silly not to just make your own thing. And if you can work on your craft and you can understand again that many of these ideas about the marketing um, and the structures that involve the distribution, the packaging of products, the way that they're sold, these things are going to become easier and easier. They are very, very easy now, but the storm of automation is going to collapse a lot of these things down onto each other. And there's going to be a good opportunity, potentially, again, no one knows the future, but there is a good chance that there will be a new golden age of people being able to create stuff by themselves with very, very small teams. And what you need there is a good ability to understand craft, because if you understand craft and you have good ideas and you understand how to sell and sort of create that product that people are actually interested in, you have a vertically, vertically integrated business. And at that point, I think you have a lot of creative freedom and to a certain degree, the best of all of these worlds. Lastly, if we look at a spiritual philosophical takeaway here, it's a real challenge because artists often want to be artists. We want to sit in our studio and do our thing. Like maybe a lot of the extroverted performance-based artists, they want to go and perform. But, you know, again, I'm sort of thinking about this from my perspective. I can't really speak to that. But a lot of us like to sit in our studio. We like to do our thing. We don't want to think about money or marketing or any of these concepts. They in many ways can affect the intent and the purity of our artistic expression and they can get in the way of the complexity of figuring out what we want to say. But it could also be said that the business and the marketing and coming up with these things is part of the artistic experience. I think it very much was so for Picasso and a lot of people who have been successful. I think they found a way to make those things an art 
to work on them, to be playful with them, and to learn how to express themselves through the products and the businesses that they made, the propaganda and the marketing that they engaged in. At the bottom line, you should understand the mechanisms at play here dispassionately, as I've tried to explain, because then I think you can understand that you're making choices. It is a choice to do one thing or another. You have more power there. I think it's critical to get a feel for what we should expect from working in large corporations. Do we just want to be a small cog in the machine, a large cog in the machine? What expectations should you have if you do that? And I think that will allow you to come at to peace with the decisions you're making. Likewise, if you take your vow of, po vow of poverty you don't worry about making too much money. You just focus on the artistic purity. Again, I think there's a lot of artists who do that, but they bemoan the lack of money. And what they're getting is a lot of positive ability to be artistically expressive and to really explore life and live a lot of things to the fullest. Again, there's no one answer here, but I think a lot of people can find happiness and contentment if they understand they're making conscious decisions with their artistic career and that they have weighed the positives and negatives that come with that. That at least has been my experience. Anyway, I think that's all we got time for on this particular episode. Let me know what you thought of this one. Maybe it was a little bit too much sort of revolution, a little bit too depressing. Hopefully not, but let me know what you think. Again, um, my goal here is to try and share some knowledge that I've learned about business and, you know, doing a wide variety of things, right? Again, working for large companies, doing my own thing, um, self-publishing stuff on Kickstarter. I've tried a lot of this stuff, so hopefully my information and experience here has helped you. I'm certainly still growing and learning as it comes to all of these things, trying new things, trying to understand how this works. So let me know if you've got comments uh, or questions that we can sort of, you know, help build upon this sort of knowledge. Maybe I can make some follow-up videos on some of these concepts as well. But uh, other than that, uh, good luck with your career advancement and options. Uh, good luck with your art and we'll catch you around on the next one.